You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. How do you manage your overall technology digital footprint in such a way that you would know what was happening in that environment? And are you doing the basic blocking and tackling that keeps that risk to an acceptable level? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a Michigan case dealing with persistent unmanned drone surveillance. I've got the story of a California judge blocking a law aimed at increasing the online safety of kids. And later in the show, my conversation with Karen Worstel of VMware, discussing how CISOs can make their mark with the new SEC rules. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, let's jump right into our stories here. You want to kick things off for us? So I wanted to talk today about unmanned aerial vehicles or drones. Hmm. Uh, This is a case that comes out of Michigan. It's currently before the Michigan Supreme Court. And I was alerted to it by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They filed an amicus friend of the court brief arguing that this type of persistent surveillance is unconstitutional. Hmm. So this is in Long Lake Township. Sounds beautiful. I have no idea where it is. Uh, They hired private operators to repeatedly fly drones over Todd and Heather Mason's home to take aerial photos and videos of their property as part of a zoning investigation. I'll note that it's— Wait, wait. Zoning? Yeah. It would be one thing if they were, like, you know, cooking meth in their backyard. Right, right. They've got 100 acres of of fine marijuana growing or something, but zoning. Okay. It seems very weird that they would do this for a zoning investigation. Now, I have no idea what that entails. Maybe they're— Sure. This is a crime of moral turpitude that just relates to zoning. I have a trouble imagining what that would be. But could be. Could be. The city, Long Lake Township, is arguing that the Maxons here, it's spelled M-A-X-O-N, so I guess okay. I mispronounced it the first time. Go with Maxon. There you go. The Maxons don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their backyard. Therefore, there is no Fourth Amendment search, 
And therefore, it is proper that this township uh, conducted these warrantless or paid to have these warrantless drone surveillance searches conducted over a long period of time. Hmm. This is based on a lot of case law going back to the 1980s. So in order for there to be a search for Fourth Amendment purposes, somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy has to be violated. And there were all these cases in the 80s that dealt with aerial surveillance. Uh, Usually those cases did deal with people growing drugs in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court said, look, that's in public view. Theoretically, anybody could see and and take high-resolution photos from 10,000 feet above your house. They'd get a decent view of what you were growing. You shouldn't have an expectation of privacy. Therefore, no search. Therefore, no warrant required. Hmm. What uh, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is arguing on behalf of the Maxons is that this kind of search is fundamentally different than the previous aerial surveillance cases. And that gets to a broader point about how, as technology changes, it's appropriate to, in the view of EFF, disregard some of this outdated case law. Because back in the day, yes, it was possible to do aerial surveillance. Right. Uh, but it was prohibitively expensive for a local township to fly a plane in, in the sky. Uh, it would just take, it was far more resource intensive. It was something that would require a sophisticated law enforcement operation. That's similar to the difference in tracking cell site location information today as it was uh, tracking somebody's real-time location 30, 40 years ago. So is the idea here that in the past it was kind of self-limiting just because of the expense and hassle of doing it? Exactly. And that's a very common constitutional argument now from civil liberties advocates is the reason it might have been acceptable in the 1980s is that, as you say, this kind of natural limiting factor of resources on behalf of these small towns. Hmm. Uh, And now we have drones. Drones Anybody can buy them. They're very inexpensive. They're very easy to fly and operate. Mm -hmm. Our next-door neighbor, who's 11 years old, flies a drone, and I always am uh, catching to see whether he's (laughs) flying it over my property and my curtilage. Uh, (laughs) So at least theoretically, any 11-year-old kid who has an Amazon account could do some type of drone surveillance on somebody's house. And because of the ubiquitousness of this technology and how easy it is to procure, the argument is... Aerial surveillance has fundamentally changed in the last 40 years, and as a result, the law should fundamentally change. Can I ask a rookie question here? Yeah, there are no rookie questions well, when it comes to the law. Wait but, till you hear my question all right. then. <laughs> so can you explain to me the difference, if any, between surveillance and a search? Sure. Uh, so a search in layman's terms would be to seek to find something. Uh, I think that's how we would all understand it if you Mm -hmm. didn't have the misfortune of going to law school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Law school ruins uh, normal words, ruins nomenclature. (laughs) Okay. Because search for legal purposes is defined very specifically as either a physical trespass, which is not happening here. Okay. Or a violation of one's reasonable expectation of privacy. So. Whether there is a physical trespass or not, if the government violates somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy, that is a search, no matter what type of surveillance, what type of form that surveillance takes. Okay. So the argument here on behalf of the Maxons and on behalf of EFF is that people should have a reasonable expectation of privacy from drones, casual, cheap drones flying over their property and taking pictures. Interestingly, one of the cases they cited was a Fourth Circuit federal case from our, uh, at least our home area here in Baltimore, Mm. 
a bunch of activists in Baltimore got together and created a group called Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, which, how are you going to oppose them in a law, uh, <laughs> in a legal case? Sure. <laughs> uh, and they challenged this aerial surveillance program that existed in Baltimore City. For several years, Baltimore City would fly at a relatively low altitude, uh, manned aircraft. It wasn't unmanned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. would just fly kind of in circles around downtown Baltimore and would take real-time photos. This was a crime-fighting measure. Right. You couldn't identify people's faces. They were just kind of little dots. But if you saw a dot go from a crime scene to a house, you get a pretty good idea of how to find a person. Hmm. So this was challenged in federal court, and the Fourth Circuit held that this was kind of analogous to what happened in Carpenter, uh, the Supreme Court case, which held that because the nature and quality of historical cell site location information is so fundamentally different— That's how we should approach all technology cases. So the fact that in the past, aerial surveillance might not have qualified as a search has no bearing on the present where we have the type of technology that an aircraft can go up and take real-time photographs every, you know, split second to get this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the the happenings in Baltimore City. I think that's very similar to uh, what's at stake in this Michigan case. Is the court going to adhere to this old precedent from the 1980s about aerial surveillance, or are they going to do what courts have started to do more regularly and reconsider past doctrines in light of modern technology? Hmm. All right. I have a couple questions here. We have talked about cases involving poll cams before. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, my recollection with that is that, um, you know, I have a piece of property. I have no expectation of privacy. Uh, So somebody can sit across the street in their squad car or unmarked squad car and keep an eye on my property. Right. Then I've put up a fence to increase my expectation of privacy, (laughs) right? Yeah. So to get above that fence, now law enforcement has put a camera up on a pole. And my recollection is that the courts considered the possibility that that was different in the attempt to circumvent my uh, specific attempt at privacy— a pole cam is different than someone sitting and watching something that's in plain view. Right, right. And you've exhibited a subjective expectation of privacy in that scenario by building that wall and building that fence. Right. Now, uh, my understanding of the law when it comes to drones is that they are under the orders of the FAA and that because they're considered little tiny aircraft— I'm not allowed to restrict a drone from flying over my property because the air is controlled by the FAA, not me. And in the same way that I can't prohibit a commercial airliner from flying over my property, yeah. I can't— If only I can't, we could. Right. That's well, going to be loud if you're near the airport. Don't get me started. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I can't prohibit a drone from flying over my property for the same reasons. Does that change if that drone is taking photos? I think it does fundamentally change. Uh, First of all, the government is involved here. Mm -hmm. So if it's just a private person flying a drone over your property, you'd have a tough time because the FAA regulates it, um, saying that this is some type of tort, some type of nuisance on your property. Okay. Uh, Which is a little weird, frankly, uh, that a neighbor can fly a drone over your property and there really aren't any significant legal consequences. You probably just have to talk to your neighbor. Yeah. It is different when the government is involved. That's the Fourth Amendment implication here. I see. What happened is that this town paid to have a private company fly a drone over this property and take photos. Uh-huh. Uh, and they did so without a warrant. So when it's the government doing it, 
Presumably for, I don't, I'm not sure if this is a civil case or a criminal case. I, yeah. I would guess it's probably a civil case if we're talking about zoning. Right. But since the government's doing it, that's why the Fourth Amendment is, is implicated here. Huh. What about satellite photography? I mean, we got very high resolution, you know, one meter resolution from satellites. Where's that fall in here? <laughs> I mean, this is where it gets really sticky. Yeah. One of the reasons the Supreme Court had this doctrine in the that developed in the 1980s and the 1990s about not having a reasonable expectation of privacy in your backyard is that satellite technology existed. And as satellite technology continued to evolve, uh, the pictures were are becoming clearer and clearer. I mean, look at a Google Street View or Google, whatever the overhead Google uh, view is of your home. Right. You know, they were able to adequately capture the uh, congratulations on my preschool graduate sign in my backyard. <laughs> That's pretty darn sophisticated. Yeah. You know, I think even if we expect a satellite to be taking photos, there is some type of limitation on that. They are not taking multiple photos in real time. Mm. Um, usually it's rather isolated. They're taking photos either on an as-needed basis or it's not the type of thing where there's a photo being taken every single second and a person can zoom in and then you have this chronicle, this encyclopedia of what's happening at somebody's house. Right. That's generally not how things work with satellite technology, but that's what's happening here with the drone huh. is it's real-time constant monitoring. Uh, so it's just a little more involved than overhead. more invasive. More invasive than that type of surveillance. Now, how that matters from a legal perspective, I don't know. I have to say, I mean, this is a really difficult issue for me. I, I can understand why somebody does not have an uh, expectation of privacy in the outdoor curtilage around their house. Right. It's, it is something that people can see into planes at low levels. I mean, that's what the Supreme Court has said. Yeah. I think it's up to the Supreme Court to determine that this type of surveillance, first be the Supreme Court of Michigan, that this type of surveillance is just fundamentally different and merits a reconsideration of that legal doctrine. And huh. I, I don't know if they are going to be able to do that in this case. I mean, uh, what if I just get a tall ladder and I, I'm on the neighboring property, you know, tall ladder and a camera with a long lens? Well, you'd Same be a creep, thing, right? first of all. I'd be what? You'd be a creep. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> yes. That's beside the point. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are more limitations in that. I think the law recognizes that snooping neighbors, as long as they don't trespass on your property, is just a reality of living in a neighborhood. So the, so the business of this is that it's the government. Yes. Is that right? I mean, that's the that's why this matters. That's why this matters for Fourth Amendment purposes. That's okay. correct. Okay. Now, you could have a cause of action, potentially, for your neighbor snooping on you, but it's really hard to do because that's going to require that they've kind of pierced your property in some way, either mm -hmm. through a physical trespass or they have the type of technology that most people can't procure where they're looking inside your house, a place where you have that expectation of, of privacy. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, since the government is involved here, we have Fourth Amendment implications. And I'm just curious to see if courts at the state level follow the path of Carpenter where, yes, in the past, this type of third-party surveillance as took place with cell site location information might not have been a search, but it's a search now because of how pervasive the technology is. And I'm wondering if state Supreme Courts are going to follow on a similar path for all different types of technology. We're talking about drones here, but I think it has wider applicability. As new technology that's more invasive gets introduced, are courts willing to consider 
doctrines that were formed far before this technology existed. And I think that's why this case is, is so interesting. Yeah. It strikes me as being potentially at least a very fuzzy line. You know, are we in uh, like, you know, pornography? I know it when I see it kind of thing. Which is, everybody always cites that. That really does come from a Supreme Court opinion, and it was really one of the dumbest lines that's ever been written by a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Because really, it is your job to come come up with a dividing line, and I know it when I see it is not really an easily justiciable dividing line. Right. But that's the but that's that's the thing. I mean, that's what makes it's this hard. really hard. Yep, that's what makes this hard. I mean, the way courts have distinguished it in the past is if it's a technology that's widely available, then that cuts against somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy. Mm. Uh, so there was a case, Kylo, a famous Fourth Amendment case in the 1980s, where the government got this type of rare infrared technology to measure heat emanating from somebody's house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And they ruled that that was a search because people wouldn't expect that somebody has infrared readers uh, on the outside of their house. Right. That was beyond reasonable expectations. But here, I mean, the fact that everybody knows or should know that that drone technology is out there, that it's relatively cheap to procure, that anybody can buy it, Maybe that really does cut against that reasonable expectation of privacy. And to get really meta here and a little bit deep, that's what's wrong with the reasonable expectation of privacy test in general is that the government can play kind of an active role. If they go out and say, well, guess what, guys? We have ubiquitous drone technology. We're going to fly them over your houses. That would cut against a person's reasonable expectation of privacy, and that would be the government playing a role in diminishing Fourth Amendment protection for people just by announcing that they have this ubiquitous technology. And I don't know why we're content in giving the government that power. I mean, previous Supreme Court justices have analogized it to what would happen if the government says, all right, we're going to open all your letters that come into your mailbox. Right. Uh, That would certainly cut against your reasonable expectation of privacy. If you heard that on the news, you would have no reasonable expectation of privacy. And it would be the government that would be cutting against that expectation of privacy. And so should we have this entire test on whether there has been a Fourth Amendment search based on something that the government itself can play a role in, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's something that needs to be reconsidered. There are a lot of good academic papers out there about reconsidering this reasonable expectation of privacy test. It comes from a case called Katz uh, in the 1960s. And... I'm one of those people who thinks that perhaps this doctrine does need to be reconsidered. Hmm. What, in your mind, would be a a good solution here, a a, a (laughs) next-generation expectation of privacy uh, guideline? It's hard to find an idea that solves every problem. The one that's come closest to me is a technology-based approach where try to maintain the same level of Fourth Amendment protection that existed prior to the technology taking place. Mm -hmm. So... Whichever level of Fourth Amendment protection you had in your backyard or the curtilage of your property should be maintained in spite of the fact that we now have ubiquitous unmanned aerial vehicles. So whatever the law needs to do to sustain that same level of constitutional protection, the law should do. And that goes in the opposite direction as well. If a criminal develops, uh, uses some type of technology to evade capture by law enforcement, then we should grant more powers to law enforcement to restore that balance as well. For you legal nerds out there, this is called the equilibrium adjustment theory. Hmm. Uh, And among all the theories about how to handle this question of what is a search, I think that's the most compelling. But 
there really are no perfect answers here. And I just, uh, hopefully we get a lot of smart minds who end up making it to the Supreme Court who can revisit this test because it creates a lot of these types of situations where you have an unworkable, vague legal standard. It's really hard to adjudicate. Uh, and I think the Michigan Supreme Court is going to struggle with this just like courts have over the past several years as this new technology has been introduced. What does the word cartilage mean? It's like the, yeah, that's another legal term of art, (laughs) but it's basically the area adjacent to your house that is part of your property. So if you have a front yard, a backyard, if the sidewalk is part of your your property, according to whatever the property records are, that's the cartilage of your house. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, this is an interesting one for sure. Absolutely. As we all, as we so often say, Ben, we'll keep an eye on this one, <laughs> and we will. Absolutely. Uh, we'll have a link to this in the show notes. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. All right, well, my story this week comes from the Washington Post. This is a story written by Cristiano Lima, and it is about a judge blocking a California law that's meant to increase the online safety of kids. California had... Uh, an age-appropriate design code, uh, and this judge says that that probably violates the First Amendment. Can you unpack this for us, Ben? What's going on here? Yeah, so California passed a law, uh, the California Age-Appropriate Design Code, as you say. Mm-hmm. It has a couple of requirements. One is that platforms themselves would have to vet their own products before they release them to the public. They would have to vet their products to make sure that whatever they were offering doesn't harm kids and teens. Hmm. Uh, and then the law, I think the less controversial portion of the law would require platforms to enable stronger data privacy protections by default for younger users. Hmm. So on applications that are geared toward younger users, they would uh, there would be a requirement on behalf of these platforms to have built-in default stronger privacy protections. This first provision about vetting products before their public release has a couple of First Amendment issues attendant to it. One is that it's kind of vague. I don't know exactly what it goes into vetting one's product. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of reminds me of a scene in The Office where Michael is uh, worried about the sustainability of his paper company that he opened. Right. (laughs) uh, And his financial advisor tells him, like, yeah, you're pretty much screwed. And the guy's like... (laughs) Michael's like, can you just crunch the numbers again? And the guy presses return on his computer and says, crunch, I crunched the numbers. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm imagining here. Like, yeah. yep, we we vetted it again, and it's still fine. Right. Uh, what the platforms would argue is that under Section 230 uh, of the Communications Decency Act and under the First Amendment, the platforms themselves have a right to determine which content shows up on their platforms without having to do this type of internal vetting, Hmm. uh, that they have the right both by statute and by implication, the Constitution, to make those decisions for themselves to sell the products that they want to sell, subject to other federal laws. So for things like child pornography, obviously, there's a role for the government to play in in preventing that from circulating. Mm -hmm. But for most other types of content, it could be an inhibition on what these platforms publish and that is a prior restraint on uh, on speech, which is a almost always per se constitutional violation. So that's really the trouble with the law here. This is not just a California problem. Yeah. Uh, the California law was passed with bipartisan support. This is not a partisan issue. A lot of states, uh, both red states and blue states, are trying to institute these laws. There's a federal law um, that has not passed but has been proposed 
to protect child online privacy. And they all kind of run into the same problem that if you are prescribing certain content uh, on the internet, especially as it relates to the accessibility for adults, that could be an inhibition on the First Amendment rights of these platforms. Hmm. As we know from recently announced retiree Mitt Romney, corporations are people, my friend. (laughs) Uh, So they still do have First Amendment rights. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's going to be a problem for all these laws. Huh. How does this differ from, for example, you know, my cable TV provider allowing me to have parental controls on what shows my kids have access to? Well, that's granting the user controls. Now, in all of these contexts, I think these platforms have been pretty good about giving the parent or the guardian or whomever the mechanisms to control content that goes to their kids, but that's all a power that the user has and not a power that the company would have or that the government is imposing on the company. Mm. So I think it's completely different and entirely acceptable to give those options to people to use the, those locking features, age verification, if you are implementing them on your own devices. I think what's happening here is that the government is perhaps coercing these companies into censoring content writ large uh, before it goes to anybody's device. And that's the real constitutional issue here. Hmm. You know, we often talk about how many efforts there are in some of the legislation we see that we, you know, we kind of joke and roll our eyes at the attempts to, you know, think who's going to think about the children, right? Um, Because I think quite often that's rolled out as a framework or, or, a way to get something across the finish line, even if they're not in good faith actually attempting to do that. Right. It seems to me in this case, they are in good faith trying to do that. Yeah. Is that that a fair assessment? I think that's totally fair. I mean, this is not just an overactive legislature in California. Similar laws have faced these difficulties in Arkansas and Texas. So it's something that Everybody is trying to do. I mean, I think, of course, you should recognize the societal interest we have in protecting kids from harmful content on the Internet. Right. But the First Amendment presents all these types of difficult problems. There is no First Amendment prohibition on hate speech, despite what you might read uh, on your social media account. Mm. That's really difficult. It's a really difficult societal problem. But we have to balance the impact it would have to censor a type of speech versus the value that you would get in that type of censorship. And in this country, we've almost unanimously, especially in the last 50 or so years, come down on the side of more speech, more freedom to put out content that you want to put out, not subject to pressures from the government. So I think that's um, kind of where I suspect the law will will settle here. Uh, And that's bad news for people who are trying to get these kids' privacy laws across uh, across the finish line. So we're putting the effort in the parents' laps to, to be the filter for what their kids do and do not see. That's going to be the impact of this. Now, that presents its own concerns. Uh, if you see this as a societal problem, parents aren't perfect, <laughs> as we all know, and they either might not have the resources or wherewithal to uh, protect their kids from... Uh, stuff that they see on social media sites. Yeah. I caught my daughter watching a Mr. Beast video where there was an F-bomb. She's (laughs) 
almost because seven. Living in your household, I'm sure she's never heard that word before, exactly. right, Ben? Uh, <laughs> I certainly, uh, when I realized that this was her video saying that, I was like, oh man, I really should do something to make sure she's not watching something like this. And I consider myself a pretty attentive parent. So yeah. it's not easy, especially when your kids are just growing up around this stuff. So I can see why policymakers want to make it easier for parents, but you just run into this First Amendment buzzsaw, and there's not much you can do about it at that point. At the risk of of opening up a can of worms here, I'm reminded of what we're seeing in communities across this great nation of ours where folks are trying to restrict what goes in libraries and, and ban books and so on and so forth. I mean, it seems to me that that is coming at the problem similarly to the way that this law did by restricting the provider, which you know would be the library, rather than relying on the parents to be in control of what the kids bring home and consume from the library. A- am I off base with my analogy here? No, you're not off base. Uh, just a couple of things I'll point out. One, there have been a lot of lawsuits related to these so-called book bans. Yeah. Uh, so... You're not the only person that sees the First Amendment problem here. Okay. And also, it's a little bit different because public libraries are public. So there's less of this problem of the government coercing private companies and preventing them from making decisions as to what content to put out there. I see. Libraries, I think, should have a degree of independence, um, but they just don't because they are government entities. At the end of the day, they're funded by whoever's in office. We the taxpayers. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Interesting stuff. Uh, Again, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. That is from the Washington Post. We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I always look forward to having a conversation with our next guest here. Uh, It's Karen Worstel. She is from VMware. And our conversation today centers on uh, CISOs and how they will interact with some of these new rules we've seen from the Securities and Exchange Commission when it comes to reporting breaches uh, that have, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Material impact. (laughs) Here's my conversation with Karen Worstel. In a nutshell, I think what the SEC has tried to do here is what I would equate. I would equate this to cybersecurity, like Sarbanes-Oxley. And that is, they're attempting to create 
a reporting system that has consistency and is centralized so that investors and shareholders have the opportunity to have the information they need about risk, particularly in the area of, of cyber risk, for the purposes of making you know, investment decisions. That is triggered by, of course, what we all know has been happening over the last decade um, as the number of um, incidents, major incidents, have, re- have really expanded and, you know, the concerns that the threat environment is continuing to um, accelerate. It has some very interesting implications, but we'll get into that. I think the thing that's really important to remember is they are asking for us to disclose material cyber incidents within four days of determining that the event is material. So they're not asking us to report every cyber incident. There has to be a determination of materiality to the company. And that can include a lot of things that are important for us to talk about. And they want to also have visibility of the company's processes and its approach to cyber risk management. And that needs to be disclosed on the 10K filing. So these are not, you know, just simple reports. These are SEC filings that are needing to take place, um, either on the 8K or the 10K. Uh, for U.S. companies and for foreign registrants, then they would be filing those in a different way, but they would still be participating. So it affects anybody who is part of, who's a registrant in the, under the SEC. You know, you... you bring up that word material, what sort of uh, wiggle room does that give in-house counsel to decide whether or not something needs to be disclosed? It's not like prescribed, right? There isn't a formula that, um, or a prescriptive way for somebody to say, if it hits this threshold, it's material for you. They have to look at this from a number of different angles. Like there are certain accounts in the in the chart of accounts for an, for a company that if they if those accounts were affected that could be a material thing but there's also the question of impact and this is where it gets kind of interesting because when i'm determining a material impact there's the there's the impact to my company like whether that might be our ability to operate or it could be to the people whose information I hold. So there was just some interesting breaches reported in the news in the last few days. And as we look at those, we like let's just take a payment processor who has a significant security breach and none of the merchants are able to clear transactions or, or, or make sales for a significant period of time. Those merchants had losses. Those losses associated with the inability for them to conduct business is part of the determination of materiality in, in some ways. I mean, it could be like, not that you're necessarily directly responsible for their losses, but they have a stake in whether or not your security is good. And if you have a an outage and they come back to you and say, I need you to make me whole for the losses that I've incurred, then we've got you know, potentially a class action lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of losses are involved. Does this represent an opportunity for security leadership within an organization to to know what needs to be done? 
Yeah, and again, it's not prescriptive. The SEC hasn't come back and prescribed anything, and this is why it's so much like Sarbanes-Oxley. So I rely on the experience that I had in in conducting a sort of a security overhaul for a company in the early days of or early years of Sarbanes-Oxley. This is one of those situations where companies have to look at what is this asking me to be able to do and then say, what would it take for me to be able to do that? What this is really asking a company to be able to do is to say that their cyber risk management processes are good enough that they would be aware if there was any kind of an incident or a series of incidents that could result in a material impact. So then I have to ask the question, what would it take for a company to be able to say, yes, I absolutely am able to do that? That means you've got visibility of your compute environment and your third-party relationships to such a degree that you would know if something was happening. And that is a tall order. A lot of companies don't have, for example, a data inventory. They don't have a a very clear understanding of their entire compute environment. They don't have control over the the cloud environment necessarily where things are being spun up and spun down in a really rapid fashion. This is going to take some introspection on the part of the company to say, if that is the intention here and that is what I'm trying to do, can I do that today? The answer in many cases is going to be no. And then it's a question of how far away am I from that? What do I have to do to get there? And I think that has the opportunity to overhaul a lot of the way we've approached cyber risk management in the past. Because we've gotten super focused on cyber risk management as a incident detection and response capability. And what does it take to keep the bad guys out? What this is asking us is, how do you manage your overall technology digital footprint in such a way that you would know what was happening in that environment? And are you doing the basic blocking and tackling that keeps that risk to an acceptable level? And it's, I think, going to overhaul the way we look at, at security practices. And it's going to become much more aligned to things like the ISO 27000 information security uh, management system processes and quality management as a, uh, you know, for the digital environment, as opposed to a very narrowly focused cybersecurity thing that has in recent years been very focused on cyber war and that kind of jazz. What's your assessment of, of how the SEC has dialed this in here? Do you do you feel as though this is going to move the needle without being too burdensome? There's a ton of discussion in the SEC document about how burdensome this could be. I haven't fully digested that myself. I'll just tell you based on what I saw from Sarbanes-Oxley. When we fully embraced, I I would say we leaned into Sarbanes-Oxley in a big way at the company that I was at at the time. We were like, we're going to do this the right way because it was important for us. We had a a big merger coming up and it was important for us to have no deficiencies in security. So we just leaned right into it and said, what will it take for us to do this the right way? And we did it. We discovered how, how much work there was to do 
to to bring bring the whole IT environment into a well-managed, quality-managed set of processes and techniques. But when we did it, we started deploying defect-free code. Our 7911 outage call that we ran six days a week went away. Our developers got their lives back. Um, we could provision accounts and deprovision accounts in a matter of minutes as opposed to a matter of weeks. We knew what was in our environment and we knew what was happening. We had a six, we had an in, intrusion detection and response capability that ran to six sigma level tolerances. That was the payout for doing it the right way. All we did was cyber risk management the way the SEC is asking us to do it now. Is it a heavy lift? It can be. Is it worth it? Yes. I think the payoff in the terms of the way the company is managed, its visibility, its confidence, and ability to provide assurance to shareholders as well as stakeholders is probably worth the effort. And I would really encourage companies to take a look at it that way. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, really interesting stuff. I think uh, if you're a CISO, this is a new world for you. You're not used to these types of rules. There may be concepts that you're being introduced to here that have never been a primary focus uh, in your world of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that there's situational awareness on behalf of these CISOs, uh, that there's knowledge sharing People are helping each other figure out how to make sense of these regulations. So yeah. I appreciated the conversation. It's interesting to me how for years now, CISOs have been asking to have more of a seat at the table at the board. You know, there's been um, a lot of folks have said that, uh, you know, chief information security officers were in many organizations a part of the C-suite in name only. Right. Right. Um, but I think as we see these types of rules come into play, um, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a double-edged sword for the CISOs. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah. Because you're going to get that seat at the table, but you have to... You're going to be held responsible for what happens. Right, exactly. Yeah. You have to navigate some of these new rules. So, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Karen Worstel for joining us and uh, helping us understand it. Again, she is from VMware, and we do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. 
That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to remind you that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.